Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to this episode of the Full Diversity Partners Podcast. This is Michael Welp, and today our guest is Stephen Tepper, who is the Dean of the Herberger Institute for Design and Arts at the Arizona State University, which is the nation's largest comprehensive design and art school at a research university. Stephen's also a sociologist and a numerous author of various books. And it's great to have you with us, Stephen. Thank you, Michael. It's such important work. I had a great time with you a couple years back in September 2017. You were at one of our white men's caucuses with, I think, four or so other ASU deans that you shared that with. Yep, that's right. Now, looking back, it's been a couple years now. What do you remember about what you thought about the caucus when you first heard about it and maybe what you talked to your colleagues about when you're going to this white male only learning lab for diversity and what was that experience like when you got there and started learning about it? Yeah, well, as I'm sure you have received feedback over the years just on the whole idea of white men getting together in a caucus seems anachronistic. And I think my first response was, what is this? Why is it necessary? Generally, the idea of spending four long days with a bunch of white men is not the first thing that would be on my agenda. But reading about the organization and understanding the effort to create real allies in the work for equity and racial justice, you know, it's a real call to those of us who really don't walk around every day with these enormous life taxes because we don't get questioned in spaces because of our background and our gender to really push ourselves to understand what the privileges we have, what our obligations are and to really pay attention and listen. And I think what was most important in sort of realizing why it's important to have this time for white men, it was sort of imparted early, is when there are women and people of color in the room, we default to them to do the hard work, to provide all the explanation, to provide all the answers and solutions. and. I think it's really important that that dynamic doesn't happen and that we force ourselves to be uncomfortable, to own the work that has to be done, and to spend the time reflecting. For me, the initial was, what is this? Why is it necessary? Why is it not a diverse group? Wouldn't we learn better if we were in a more diverse community? And then understanding that there is obviously space for us to learn in diverse places, but that there is a role for white men to come together, be vulnerable, challenge their assumptions, be uncomfortable, and do that initial hard work ourselves before we ask our allies to work with us. Yeah, you sound like you really got it around that, not putting the burden on others to educate us over and over. And so once you were into the caucus a few days, 
What was that like for you? What were some of the biggest ahas? First, just time. These issues are so complicated. Mm-hmm. In my mind, in a sort of second wave of civil rights. And the first wave was around policy and law. And there was kind of a blue book for how to do that work, how to activate social movements, how to put pressure, how to advance legislative agendas, how to change rules that govern us. But the symbolic and the cultural and the identity, that work was left unresolved. And I think we're at a moment in history where recognition that symbols and culture and identity are really important and powerful and really affect everything about opportunity and equity. But there's no blueprint for how to advance in these cultural areas, the things that are often invisible, but still create enormous injustices. And so one of the things I liked about the program is that there's a lot of focus on culture and story and poetry and film and using cultural material to investigate this very, very complex topic. One, we had the time to deal with that complexity, to think about it, to let it sit with us. And we also had the access to some tools of theater and film and art, I think, that were really useful and powerful. At the heart of what I felt like I I went through was hearing story after story after story in lots of different formats of voices of people who were not in the room with us, but whose experiences entered the room. And like one after another, you think to yourself, how did I miss that? Of course, that with their background and experience would experience that. Of course, in a meeting, that's how the dynamic goes. And it's heartbreaking to hear the voices of people saying what it felt like to be in a particular situation, but also just so powerful, recognizing that those are voices all around us every day in our work and organizations. We just don't hear them and we don't and we often don't invite them. And so for me, that was powerful. Again, inviting us to read the words of people that you guys have collected over the years and in various ways from individuals, from quotes, from stories. And for us to recite those out loud in a community, have to feel the intensity of those words. Again, it's a dramatic method, but it's one that's very powerful. So I thought it was a very embodied experience, right? Forcing us to hear, live, recite, the language, the words, seeing images, seeing pieces of media where artists were experimenting with revealing invisible exclusions that we miss every day. There were some heartbreaking projects that artists did in public spaces where they saw people making decisions that reflected biases that are really painful. These sort of really creative acts that made visible things that would otherwise be invisible. Yeah, I think that there's this dynamic where we're looking out the window at other people, women, people of color, and what their experiences are like through their words and through their voices and trying to get that at the head and the heart level. And while we're looking at the mirror at their experiences, we're looking out the window for them and looking in the mirror and seeing who we are and that we don't have to deal with some of those things that you earlier called taxes 
or things that they're navigating, dealing with, negotiating, how they're seen, how their competencies questioned, whether their voice is heard. And we might deal with that if we're an individual that has a soft voice, but generally we're not dealing with the stuff they're dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. Left those four days fully aware of that. You can't unsee what you've seen or unhear what you've heard. And so you carry that with you everywhere now, which is the beginning of a journey. But if you're not wearing the right glasses for that journey, then you miss a lot of the topography, a lot of the contours of the environment you're in. I do think those four days were fitting me with the right lenses for the paying attention that I need to be doing. Yeah. Seeing with new eyes, being able to sense into things. And I think there's Sometimes we have a previous lens that says, I already know a lot about this stuff. And I think you being a sociologist probably felt like you've studied inequality. You've studied all kinds of things like that. So you probably felt like there may be not much more to learn here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And when I came back, I was thinking about that, right? That this is stuff that I I know, right? I've read about it. I've written about gender inequality immigration, cultural conflict, politics of fear, microaggressions. I mean, that's just part of my training as a sociologist and part of some of the things I write about. But I do think there's a difference between knowing something and feeling it or knowing something and truly listening or the difference between knowing and learning. And we can know a lot of things and not change by that knowledge. And I think it requires converting knowing into those other active states, feeling, listening, learning, empathizing, imagining that if you don't make that conversion then you're engaged intellectually, but you haven't fully activated yourself as an ally in the work. If you're going to ultimately step into messy topics around diversity and inclusion, We can't just enter at the head level. We do have to enter at the head and heart. And you mentioned a lot of complexity, just giving the time for us to sit with all the messy complexity of this. And you said embody. That's one of the reasons it is four days. It takes that long to sit with this messiness and say, we can't just clean this up in a few hours. We can't just jump to problem solving because we barely see things. We have to learn how to put on a whole nother set of lens. We have to learn how to listen without trying to fix. We have to sit with the confusion that feels at times overwhelming and feel what it might be like to deal with all that stuff that others are dealing with. And then not have it mean anything about us being bad or wrong or anything. We just, our worldview isn't wrong. It's just incomplete. We're just getting a perspective that we didn't have to tune into before. Yeah. And I I would reinforce as one of the key learnings for me, something you just said, which is that was really the first time that I became aware of my default mode, which is to solve the problem quickly. I immediately, when I'm engaging with could be with my wife or could be in a meeting with a diverse set of people. I feel like it's my job to fix it, <laughs> you know, or that's everyone's job, but I feel entitled to be the fixer. I feel like I have permission, expectation. And I think one of the things that we learned in that first day is that that is actually not a universal, but that's a male, a white male perspective. Not exclusively, but it is part of our culture. And so for me, it has changed. There's been so many times where I've just hit pause 
and said, just stay in the uncomfortable for a while and let someone else talk or let someone else offer or let someone else grieve, whatever needs to happen. And there doesn't have to be an answer right now. There may not even have to be an answer today or this week or this year. And that's a hard thing to let go of because I've been just entrained in that kind of habit of trying to problem solve everything. I think the other thing is that so many white men go into this work with the right intention, but they want to see, they want to see fixes. They want every conversation to feel productive, to feel like it's advancing this agenda, that we're going to solve the problem, that we're going to leave the room feeling better than when we went in. There's a lot of bearing witness that has to happen, which just means we need to bear witness to someone's pain and struggle. Yeah, and, and show that we're impacted by it in a way where they feel like we really get it. We get their experience and their scene. And I like to say there's certain questions that the white male culture trains us to ask. What are the three things you want me to do differently? And then we don't ask questions that are outside of that culture box, which are like, what's it like to be you? What's it like to be you here in this university as a student or as a faculty? And yeah, that's what you're talking about is just stopping and pausing and giving space for them to show up and share their reality. And then us get it without trying to solve it, fix it, minimize it. And sometimes we don't even realize it's being minimized because we're trying to change it before we they even know we understand the reality. So that sounds like it's impacted how you lead and how you partner back at the school. Yeah, and it's it's in many micro ways. I didn't come back and write a strategic plan. <laughs> you know, you just try to come back with a, a hyper sensitivity to myself in space and place with others. That's probably good for generally being a good person in the world. Certainly for this moment in time, we're trying to get our campuses to learn how to become more radically welcoming. You know, our students are struggling. Our faculty are struggling. Again, there's not a there's not a blueprint for the work. I think our students are showing up in the sort of second wave of civil rights around culture, symbols, and identity, and their expectations are different. How to talk about these issues, what is triggering and what is not triggering, and why. This is just really new territory for so many faculty and leaders in higher ed. We're at a point, I, I mean, I, I deeply believe this, where not seeing who our students are. We're seeing some idea of who we think they are or who we were, but we're not seeing them. And there would have been a time when students might have bit their lip and said, okay, I got to pay my dues. I'm here. I'm, I'm not being seen. I don't feel like I belong, but I'm lucky to be here. That's not where we are right now. Nobody feels lucky to be anywhere where they're not fully included. If we don't learn how to see better, if we can't see our students for who they are, for the experiences they're bringing with them, for their aspirations, these issues of inclusion and belonging and equity will trump every other issue that university leadership and faculty are facing. And the challenges of our budgeting and our management and our fundraising are tiny in comparison to the challenges of building an inclusive community. Mm -hmm. Well, you said you didn't just come back and write a simple, heady strategic plan, but you did go back and write a very powerful letter that you shared with me. And you sent that to over 5,000 students, 450 faculty that you have, and all kinds of people in the community. And 
that's modeling. I think you shared openly about your journey and what you knew and what you didn't know you didn't know and that you openly declared yourself learning and awakening. And actually you were, as part of an atonement, you were asking for forgiveness for well, how people may have been impacted in the university system. That was a very powerful thing you did. A very courageous, by the way, Stephen. I'm sure you've heard that from people who read it, but I was impressed with that so much. Uh, yeah, I don't think I realized at the time. It felt like something I had to do. It was during Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. and I'm, I'm Jewish, and so you're supposed to be reflecting upon who you've harmed during the 10 days of the high holiday services. So you know, I get back from the Whiteman's Caucus full diversity partners initiative and coinciding with this like need to ask and think about what you've done in the world that caused harm to others. And so really, I just felt like I had to write something. I did reveal my own struggles and my lack of knowledge and made apology to my daughter for not understanding what she has to experience to our students for not fully listening to their experience and trying to create an institution that will honor them. I got a lot of response to that. I think it's it's an interesting, we're kind of in, in this interesting moment where as the stakes get higher and as the challenges of managing our culture become more immediate, many leaders are retreating to like a position where they are a protective position, right? Let's work with my legal team and my PR team and my script writers and let's Let's get the package right because we can't afford to make a mistake. Mm -hmm. Yes, and never talk about what I'm confused about or what I don't know. And yet you did the opposite of that. Like, why can't you show up as an authentic leader and say, I am confused. I think I'm probably making mistakes. I need to learn. And I'm vulnerable. I just want to point out, I'm vulnerable. Most white guys, vulnerability is seen as a weakness. And I think we have to relearn and see it as a form of courage, as Brene Brown says, and that you created a lot of safety when you shared that stuff. You actually created probably a lot of people willing to speak up. Oh, he's going to share that. I can talk about what it's really like to be here, which is what you want your students to be seen. Why are we trying to hold on to job if we're having to bury our humanity in the process? <laughs> I'd much rather be vulnerable. And if People take advantage of my vulnerability and there's something gets unleashed that I can't control and then you live with that. I don't want to live with being silent or being a sort of carefully constructed puppet that's trying to just get through the day. We've got to show up in our full humanity and all of our insecurities and vulnerability and be willing to cry if if you're feeling moved to do so. If you think the way through this work is just to spin out a better narrative, you know, you're lost for sure. And that's, I think, one thing that we can do as men around gender or white folks around race is give each other permission to show up and be real, be confused. And that just gives others permission to say, oh, I'm actually learning about this too. So your modeling of that as a leader is uh, in that community is huge. And that it just probably a lot of people some of them breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, I can be human, like you said. Instead of us as a whole focus saying, how do we solve this inclusion problem as fast as possible so we can get on with our life? No, this is a complex thing that's going to be with us for a while. How about we ride this wave of working this issue in a way where we allow everybody's humanity to show up and we allow people to 
experience realness with each other and that just grows the quality and the texture as a, as a school of art i imagine i would think of that as a form of expression just that authentic expression in these kind of dialogues authentic is definitely the word you have to find that i'll just say i mean the the other thing that has been helpful is to have a partner one of my school directors tiffaniana lopez i brought on as a senior advisor to the dean for equity practices and engagement and she would be the first to recognize that our conversations were not easy you know there's still a power dynamic right she works for me and she had to bring things to my attention that were happening in the college some things that i perhaps were part of propagating that i needed to be checked on and but other things that were broader part of our culture and those are hard conversations and at first i think we we were probably sort of dancing around some of the key issues. We didn't quite have all the trust we needed between, but we just slugged through it, all the uncomfortableness until she could tell me anything. I could ask any question of her. There are still situations, many, where she might raise a flag or a concern, and and I'd say, I don't get it. You need to help me understand it more. Having someone who I could continue to be that vulnerable in on a sort of one-to-one basis to be able to work through things, to be able to reveal my ignorance, to be able to reveal some of my biases and have her challenge me on them, that's really powerful. So I I would suggest to people, if you can find a powerful person who can be a partner in really working through this complexity and the uncomfortableness and can be a place to bounce ideas, even as they're emerging and incomplete in your head, that has made a big difference for me. Yeah, I bet. That's great. We call that a relationship with support and challenge. You're both supporting and challenging each other so that that learning continues around the topic. And and ultimately, we need those partners across difference. And we need other partners for us as white men. We need other white men that we can have those same dialogues with too and challenge each other so that they don't always have to continue that process with women, people of color. So it's a both and. It's like, how can we do all of that? And sometimes other white men will hear things differently from us than they will from a woman or a person of color too. So it's a, all those voices are important. Really appreciate the time that you've had, Stephen. Is there anything else you want to share? Any other advice you have for other leaders or deans? I would just say the other thing that I discovered, and this is partly in my work with Tiffany here, and this was a big insight, is that when you fully commit to this work, especially from a sort of organizational, institutional level, it's going to feel worse before it feels better. So I think people have the naive notion that I'm going to create a diversity task force and we're going to create a lecture series and we're going to open up our syllabi to interrogation. And it's just going to be this road to every day. It's going to feel a little bit better. And it actually doesn't in the beginning because you have just raised a bunch of stuff that people don't have all the material to work through yet. And you raise expectations and you raise visibility and you give people the confidence to come forward with things that had been invisible previously. So it will feel worse before it feels better. And if you don't go in understanding that, then I think too many white men abandon the work because it didn't feel like they thought it was supposed to feel when they started. And that's almost worse than, than never having begun it in the first place. 
So I think the mindset is to really be in it for the long haul. And if you fall down or stumble, keep getting up, just like learning to ski or some other skill that's new. It's like this is a long-term process and finding those folks of support that will help say, yeah, that was hard. Get up. Come on. Let's keep going. We need those allies with each other. So thank you so much for your time, Stephen. Thank you, Michael, for the conversation. Thank you for doing what you're doing. And good luck with the work. You too. Thanks a lot. Onward. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.